Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I just want to thank you for listening. If you're new here, thank you for joining us for the first time. Um, as always, I never really thought I would be doing this for this long. I thought that it would just be a hobby, something I would do every once in a while. Um, I thought at most my family would listen. And now I have listeners from all around the world. I greatly appreciate it. Every time I log in, I see new countries and new listeners, Norway, Portugal, Japan. Thank you guys so much. I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, there's links below to the merchandise store. I'm working on new merch for you guys now. Um, There's also uh, links to the Patreon. I'm going to get some new stuff up um, next week and um, as well. Um, the, that way, if you want to reach out, there's links to my, um, Instagram and, uh, my Twitter. So if you want to give me suggestions, you want to talk to me, uh, just, you know, you can reach out to me on there. Um, I always appreciate hearing from you guys. So, um, let, once again, thank you so much. Any feedback is welcome. Now, this week we're going to look into the case of Jameson Bachman, a serial a squatter. For those of you who don't know what squatting is, it's when you move into a place and then just refuse to leave. Irregardless, um, like even uh, a lot of times squatters move into empty buildings. Uh, so his is a very unusual case because it wasn't just about moving in and not leaving. Uh, so we will start with... Not every psychosis is always caused by trauma, but studies show that experiencing trauma significantly increases the chances of psychosis. Trauma means bad things that happen to you or have happened to you in the past, but still affect your everyday life. People often associate trauma with shocking things like physical abuse or sexual assaults. While certain things are traumatic, a trauma can affect be be affected by any event that has a strong impact on you. So what that means is trauma doesn't necessarily mean just like a assault. It can be any major life event. So it can be the passing of a loved one. It could be the loss of a child. Like a lot of people struggle to understand when you miscarry, how traumatic that is and how it can affect your entire life going forward that you struggle to deal with it. A lot of people feel like, it wasn't a child yet, so you really shouldn't be that upset. That is considered a life trauma. Um, it also can be something um, like being bullied, or it even can be like when you spend your whole childhood preparing to go to college for a specific profession, and then you can't get into that. Like say that you spent your whole life preparing to be a doctor or a lawyer, and you can't get into med school, or you can't get into law school, or you can't pass the med school entrance exam, or you can't pass the bar. So that is traumatic because you spent your whole life trying to be that. And now you feel like a failure. What is my life about? Many people will not consider that trauma, but it is considered a trauma. While things, these things like sexual assault certainly are trauma and are considered the most common types of trauma, there are other things much smaller that impact people on a daily basis. The connection between trauma and psychosis sometimes is very clear and extremely direct. Hearing voices and feeling suspicious immediately after having a shocking experience is common. Sometimes the shocking experience is the trigger that sets off psychosis. 
Sometimes the experience returns as part of the psychotic symptoms. For example, someone could hear the verse, the voice of the perpetrator or feel chased by someone who was involved in the event. Studies show that in the Netherlands, about 16% of people under the care for psychotic disorders also have post-traumatic stress disorder. These people often have more serious problems and find it more difficult to function than people with psychotic problems without PTSD. Therefore, talking about trauma with your therapist and treating possible PTSD is extremely important. Going through a psychotic episode and all its consequences can also be extremely traumatic in itself. The thoughts and delusions during psychosis can be very frightening. Someone can be literally afraid to die, and encounters with police and care workers can also be traumatic. For instance, when someone is involuntarily admitted and has to stay in an isolated, segregated unit, these kinds of experiences can also lead to PTSD. Mental health services can provide trauma treatment to people with psychosis vulnerability. In the past, it was thought that you had to be very carefully treated when treating trauma with this group of people. The idea was that it could easily trigger other types of psychosis. But research shows when you offer a safe environment and have built a trusting relationship, trauma treatment is very, very possible. Such treatment even contributes to the recovery process. More difficult to identify are traumas that happen within your family history. These are serious events that didn't take place within your own personal life, but still have a horrible effect in you and throughout the entirety of your family. Think of events during the Second World War and your grandparents. Scientific research and therapeutic sessions such as psychoanalysis, transactional analysis, and family constellations show that psychosis can be a response to collective family trauma or family secrets passed on for generations. This is called transgenerational transmission. This is something I've come across in my practice doing Arise. Um, Arise is a type of intervention. It's not the one and done you see on TV that is called love. The Arise practice is a six month long practice. And as part of that, we do a genogram. A lot of people call it a family tree on steroids. It doesn't just show your family relationships. It also shows all of the traumas, the life of uh, the life traumas, the histories of substance abuse, mental illness, all of those kind of things. And as you see it throughout the family generationally, it makes a picture and it tells you a very, very, very big story. Studies show the traumatic events can even influence your DNA. Being bullied when you were young can cause a small change in your DNA, switching genes on or off, and thereby making you more likely to develop psychosis. The field of research into the effects of environmental influences on your DNA is called epigenetics. Nothing much has been found out yet as this field is fairly new, but the hypothesis is that environmental effects can change the way your genes work. Now, as this applies to Jameson Bachman, he was born in 1957 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and, in, and he was raised there in Philadelphia by his parents. They were always incredibly supportive of him. One thing that most people didn't really explore when looking into his case is his traumatic experience in college witnessing the murder of his friend Ken Gutes during his time there. 
The murder took place at the Sigma Chi fraternity house in New Orleans in 1976. Ken Gutetz was a high school friend of his, and the two were eating dinner together at the frat house. The 25-year-old, Rendell Verdreen, suddenly entered the house and violently stabbed Gutierrez. Apparently, Verdreen worked as an assistant at Tulane University Library and confronted Gutierrez about eating food in the library several months before. Vidrine asked him to leave, but he had refused, prompting Vidrine to call campus police in order to have him removed. The murder occurred after Gucci's returned to the library eating food a second time. That evening, Vidrine walked past the frat house and once again got into a fight with him. He later returned to the frat house with a knife in order to kill him. That seems a little extreme over eating in a library. Another extremely important part of Jameson's backstory is his legal training. Backman spent years abroad and only began his legal training later in his life, obtaining his law degree at the age of 45. It's interesting to note that he seemingly had a very positive reputation. His instructors at his law school of Miami and Georgetown law schools uh, described him as a remarkable student with extraordinary talents. One particular professor even went so far as to state that in 20 years of university teaching, I have encountered very few people of his caliber. However, Bachman would later fail the bar exam in 2003 and just decided to never try again. Therefore, he could never really put his skills to use and, per and practice his profession legally. Alex Herabedian was his first victim. She met Bachman in 2005 and was drawn to his fun personality and sense of humor. At the time, he had started teaching history at New Rochelle's Thornton Donovan School. He had told Harbadinian that he had a law degree but didn't pass the bar. All was well until about three or four months later, as Bachman's students started complaining about his difficult homework and the apparent difficulty in his personality. Harbadinian left Bachman after he angrily reacted to her suggestion that he should take it easy, they're just kids, and he needs to tone down his extreme ambitions to be the next dean of the school. But she ex accepted all of his profuse apologies a few weeks later when Bachman was fired. This was June 2006, and he was evicted from his faculty apartment. She took pity on him and decided to take him in, agreeing to let him stay with her for just two months until he got back on his feet. I wanted to help out a friend. I cared about him and his dog. I kind of felt bad for him. But two months turned into six years. And throughout that period, Bachman only paid one month of rent. One month. As bad as it was that Jameson Bachman paid so little rent while overstaying his welcome at Harbadinian's apartment, his actions toward the end of 2010 were much worse. While at while the two ex-partners were arguing over their bills, Harbadinian lost her temper and slapped Bachman, and he retaliated by grabbing her by the throat. They later filed protection orders against each other, so cross-protection orders, despite living under the same roof. She and her landlord, Peter Cernakis, then filed to have Bachman evicted, but he would go to the police and falsely accuse her of threatening him with a knife. The cops believed him and Harbadinian was forced to go to evacuate her own apartment, effectively 
Bachman was now Sarnakas' new tenant, and he allegedly reacted by running up the water bill, throwing kitty litter into Sarnakas' yard, and filing myriad of myriad of complaints against him. He also took some of Harbadinian's cats to kill shelters while she was away. Now, as a cat mother, I would lose my mind. Like, absolutely, 100%, I would end up in jail. Like, that, that would be the end. Bachman was finally evicted in February of 2012. And when Harbadinian asked to have her two surviving cats back, he refused. He would end up taking these cats with him when he eventually moved from the house. Early in 2012, Sonia Acevedo had just ended a relationship with her partner of 10 years, who had been helping her make mortgage payments. With her partner gone, the Queen's resident was at risk of losing her home, so she put an ad on Craigslist, which got two responses, one from a successful lawyer, Jameson Bachman, and one from a couple with a small child. She obviously chose the successful single lawyer over a family. Bachman wrote her a $1,400 check on the spot, and his first three, met, first three months as her roommate seemed perfect. Acevedo was impressed by Bachman's deep connection with animals, and that lured her into a false sense of security. Bachman stopped paying the rent, and when confronted about it, he would assure her that he understood, make up wild excuses, such as his tutoring checks got sent to the wrong address. This forced her to work extra hours to pay the rent that Bachman wasn't paying, and by September 2012, she'd had enough. Acevedo filed to have him evicted, only to be told that he has the right to stay at the apartment for at least three more months until he gets legally evicted. In another attempt to make ends meet amid her issues with him, Acevedo rented out her living room to a woman with two dogs. Feeling threatened by Bachman, the new roommate moved out, and when Bachman was served eviction papers, he became even more unpleasant to Acevedo, making aggressive threats and acting as if he could snap at any moment. When Acevedo confirmed that Bachman had indeed been going into her room as she suspected, while she was at work, she politely knocked on the door of his room and revealed what she had found out. Bachman responded by swinging a chair at her and trying to goad her into a fight. But Acevedo stood up for herself. She emphasized that she had taken self-defense classes and she could take care of herself. She left the house to go to church. Shortly after, Hurricane Sandy threw a wrench in the works, striking just as Bachman's court date for his eviction approached. But when Acevedo returned from her mother's house two weeks later, she discovered that Bachman had vacated the premises on his own. Not long after Bachman moved out, the bank unfortunately foreclosed on Acevedo's apartment. She admitted that it still hurts to think about how she lost the place that she admitted she felt would be her forever home. Nowadays, she's still just trying to rebuild her credit and is hoping to be in a better place and heal herself. Now, according to an article in New York Magazine, Melissa Frost was a Philadelphia resident who Bachman set his sights on in 2012. Apparently, he crafted a touching backstory where he had lost a fictional New York home to Hurricane Sandy. After kindly taking him in, the con man followed his usual plan. He slowly began to take over the living space while refusing to leave. Not only that, he began purposefully damaging the property within the house, such as doors, floors, and toilets. The effort he put into doing this was life-consuming. When things got bad, he stopped leaving the house because he thought I might change the locks. 
To her, Bachman appeared to function as if he were at war. One Saturday, she said that he unplugged his microwave and brought it upstairs to his room, stating that he couldn't keep, she tried to tell him he couldn't keep his things in common areas. Bachman shouted that she had no right to touch his things. She said he, she said he tried to use the microwave to push her slowly backward until she was teetering on the edge of a staircase. Luckily, a friend was there to intervene and Frost called the police. Sometime after the cops arrived, a calico cat of Bachman's named Emma disappeared. Bachman wrote a letter to Frost stating, you are the proximate cause of my cat's disappearance and presumed death. Do not communicate again with me unless it's through your attorney. <laughs> my cat has disappeared a couple of times, but I've never threatened anybody with a lawsuit. They always turn up. Yet, even after all of this, Frost approached him to try and negotiate a peaceful exit. She offered to return the money he had paid and help him find a new place to stay. Hearing her entreaties, Bachman laughed. When Frost burst into tears, Bachman pretended to comfort her. He said, You've got your whole life in front of you. You're pretty and you're talented. You've got this house. Well, you don't have the house anymore. <laughs> this is my house. It was like something out of a movie, she said. On the day in 2015, when he faced off against Jill Weatherford, a South Carolina realtor whose tenants had taken him in, he showed up in a sweat-drenched suit, having walked four miles to the courthouse in Charleston. He had somehow compiled a list of every single one of her past tenants and began rattling off their names, falsely accusing Weatherford of being a slumlord. I was like, I've never met this man before in my life. I've been doing this for 33 years and I've never seen anything like this. When he stepped before Judge Marvin Williams in Philadelphia to accuse Melissa Frost of destroying her, uh, destroying his property, Williams told him, I find you to be totally incredible. As in, I don't believe a word you say. And frankly, you're frightening. For a judge to say that, that's really bad. Mark Gainier, a former principal, a voice of Charleston Symphony Orchestra, um, which is based out of South Carolina, was one of Bachman's victims as well. He moved in to Gainier's living space in the spring of 2015, and it didn't take long for the criminal to bull the criminal bully to begin intimidating Gainier in his own home. Apparently, he started walking around with a baseball bat in an implicitly threatening manner. Next up, Michael Oberhauser of Washington D.C. He agreed to take Bachman into his home in the fall of 2016. But as you can likely guess, it didn't take long for Bachman to turn his turn on his roommate and cause anger-inducing conflicts regarding minute details about the living situation. Next up, Neville Henry, a Bermudan immigrant who was living in Philadelphia at the time. He let Bachman move in, and at some point in January 2017, apparently Henry, who Bachman was wreaking havoc on, Bachman reported to have gone after him with the broken label of a coffee table. But even so, this didn't stop Bachman from suing him to recoup his rent. So he went after a Bermudan immigrant who took him into his home with the broken label of a coffee table. And when he went to evict him, he tried to sue him to get the very little amount of rent he paid him back. Two and a half, month, two and a half months after that is when Jed Creek a.k.a. Jamison Bachman, moved into Alex Miller's apartment. By the time he arrived, 
At Alex Miller's home in March 2017, the only consistent presences in Bachman's life were his pets Zachary and Abigail, who he called his children. A few days after Alex and her mother Susan discovered his true identity, Susan Miller led herself into Alex's apartment unannounced and Bachman came roaring at her. What are you doing at my home? He said. This is my daughter's home, Jameson, Susan said. Bachman's face went pale. It was the first time either of the Millers had acknowledged they knew his name. Bachman had brushed off Alex's demands that he leave with the mantra, I'll see you in court. So on April 26, Alex took letterheads from a lawyer she worked for and typed out a notice of demand. Local police authorities have been alerted that you previously recorded disputes as a tenant in sufferance, she wrote. Bachman ignored the letter. Alex put out a listing for a new roommate, but when she brought one woman by to see the room, Bachman refused to open the door. By May 1st, Miller had a plan. That night, a dozen friends, her mother, and a few neighbors arrived for a party that she described on Facebook as a send-off for the serial squatter Jameson Bachman, meant to reclaim the space and signal that he wasn't welcome. She knew he started the online that he started his online tutoring sessions that he was using to support himself in the evenings. So she told everyone to arrive at 7 o'clock primetime. She handed out mixed drinks made with, you guessed it, Jameson. She blasted rap, which Bachman hated, from her stereo. She went online and found photos of Frost, which she printed and, to psychologically fuck with him, taped up at the bathroom on top of voted candles so Bachman could see them. I wanted him to know that I knew his past and he has to face the people that he harmed. The partiers could hear Bachman in his room, shouting into his computer. Around 11 o'clock, Bachman emerged with a box of cat litter and dumped it into the toilet. Then he huffed out of the apartment with a backpack slung over his shoulder. Zachary slinking along behind him, that would be the cat. Emboldened by Bachman's absence in whiskey, Miller's friends took a drill to his bedroom door and removed the knob. That's a little petty. As the party wound down, friends implored Miller to stay with them for the night. Frost had warned the Millers about provoking Bachman, but Miller refused. She went to bed with her door open and slept poorly. Before dawn the following morning, Miller heard Bachman rise unusually early and leave. She crossed the hall to the bathroom and was brushing her teeth, thinking she might be able to slip out and go to work while he was gone. But when then the front door opened, Bachman ran down the narrow hallway and with a fist slammed the bathroom door open. He pushed her against the wall, his hand at her throat, but when she screamed, he suddenly retreated. She followed him to his bedroom. Standing half in the doorway, she shouted, just who the fuck do you think you are? Bachman sat on his head on his bed, dicing up cat food with a knife. And then suddenly out of nowhere, he was coming at her, knife in hand. He leaned against the door to shut it and as she pulled back, her leg got stuck in the doorframe. He suddenly stated, you've made a grave mistake. And he jabbed the knife through the door opening and sliced her thigh. Blood was everywhere. When it opened even wider, Miller was, the door that is, Miller was able to pull her leg back through and run to her room. That morning, two police officers arrived from the 14th district. According to their report, they found Bachman polite, cooperative, and apologetic. 
but when they saw the cuts on Miller's legs, they arrested him. Bachman was charged with aggravated assault and other felonies and sent to jail, and Miller easily obtained a protection order. Without Bachman around, Zachary wandered the house aimlessly. Abigail, who had hidden in Bachman's blanklets since the day they moved in, emerged for the first time. Her legs stiff, took up a spot on Miller's bed. Inside Bachman's room, the heap of comforters still lay on the floor, and his computer sat on his makeshift desk of chairs. In folders, Miller found hundreds of pages of court filings against previous roommates, which she and her mother would use to track down all of his other victims. And in the back of the closet, she came across a blue box, a, a cleaning kit for a 38 caliber pistol, and a box of bullets. Alex and Susan turned the house inside out trying to find the gun. They cleaned out the cabinets, peered into the air conditioning vents, rented a metal detector, and even scoured the lawn, but the gun was gone. At one point, Harry and his wife Caroline, Harry is Jameson's brother, had taken Jameson into their home in Elkins Park, only to learn that living with him was a nightmare. Harry was not keen to experience this again, but it hurt him to know his younger brother was going to be in jail. So on June 17, he bailed him out. A few weeks later, the Millers arranged to meet Bachman at the local precinct to return his belongings. The morning of the exchange, Bachman stood outside the station, filming the Millers with his phone and narrating their arrival. As police observers hovered by, they handed him the Rubbermaid bins and Abigail, but Bachman was enraged when they declined to give back Zachary. They had sent him to live with a woman in the suburbs, and the judge had permitted her to keep him. As the Millers left the station, Bachman pulled up alongside them in a rented car, rolled down his windows, and stated, You're dead, bitch. Before speeding off, she turned around and reported him because that was a violation of the protection order, and a few weeks later, he was rearrested. Imprisoned again, Bachman grew frantic about his cat, which had been left behind in an Airbnb after his arrest. He called Harry, concerned about getting bailed out immediately so he could get back to his pet but it had already been fostered out to someone by an animal shelter. On October 28th, Harry bailed him out a second time. Jameson asked to stay at Harry's house in Elkins, but Harry refused. Carolyn Bachman was out of town trying to see their new grandchild with plans to have Harry meet her the following week. But even from afar, she feared what kind of argument might ensue if Jameson, now free, made an appearance at their house, and she asked Harry to stay somewhere else. Shortly before 7 o'clock that evening, Harry stopped home on his way out of town. As she pulled up in Carolyn's red Ford Escape, an unwelcome guest confronted him. Guess you just showed up, he texted Carolyn. No, don't guess. It's Jameson. Harry had been scheduled to arrive in upstate New York later that night, but he never made it. When Carolyn called the police, an officer went to canvas the home, and at first seeing the red Ford Escape was gone, assumed that he had left. But when police returned later that day, they noticed a trail of blood leading from the sidewalk to the front door. And when they entered the home, they found a gory sight. The dining room was covered in blood and a fresh hole had been made in the wall. Shards of shattered serving dishes littered the floor. They followed bloody drag marks to the basement where there something was being blocked by a box. They opened the door, and there on the stairway lay the body of Harry Bachman. Soon, police discovered a red Ford Escape in the parking lot of a hotel up the road. 
Bloody towels inside the car. Jameson had checked into room 102 the night before under the name Harry Bachman. Around 10.30 p.m., a SWAT team submitted without incident an affidavit filed a few weeks later claims that he rushed the SWAT team, swinging a lime green campfire axe at them in a figure X pattern. As the police hauled him in before the camera for his mugshot, his face was swollen and shoulders hunched. Jameson focused his eyes, looking extraordinarily dazed, and he had a very thin streak of blood running down his cheek. The day of his preliminary hearing was supposed to be the morning of December 11th. The room, however, was empty. Writer William Brennan remembers a clerk coming in and saying, Are you here for the 9 o'clock? And then just stating, It's been cancelled. And that was how he found out that Jameson Bachman was dead. Because a few days earlier, he hung himself in his cell at the Montgomery County Prison. That is the horrific and unfortunately sad story of Jameson Bachman. To witness such a horrific trauma and then not really doing get any help for it and then to go through life. I mean, clearly he was a very, very intelligent and brilliant man. He could have had a great career as a lawyer. So the idea that, you know, he knew the law clearly, but the idea that he couldn't pass the bar and then just gave up um, is really heartbreaking. But clearly this is not a person who was well. He was clearly struggling for a very long period of time and that's the kind of things that can happen when you experience extreme trauma in your life and never deal with it so that is this week's um story next week we are going to go back to counterculture we like to do little um pick people from counterculture and look into figures from counterculture because there are always stories behind them so we're going to do Richard Alpert. We have um, done Timothy Leary before, which was his partner in the Cyclobin drug trials. They ran those together during the 60s. However, Richard Alpert went on a journey to find enlightenment that led him to become Ram Dass, the man who inspired a thousand cults. So join me next time. And I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>